Um, for everyone who will be remaining in the service, us bigger kids, we will be in 1 Peter 5. We come to the end of this letter, this first letter that Peter wrote to the early church and believers. And so uh, we are going to be starting in verse 6. And if you would, please, if you're able, stand with me out of respect for the words of, of Christ our King. This is 1 Peter 5, 6 through 14. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Please join me in prayer. Lord, thank you for your word, for the absolute privilege and joy it is to open it, to read it, to engage with it, to study it, to see you, to see your plan, your designs. May we be encouraged by it. May we be refined by it. May we be challenged by it, led by it. We need you to lead us in this time as we continue to worship through engaging in your word. Guide us. Make us holy. May you be pleased and glorified by what we do this morning. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. So as we come to the end of this letter, talking about victory and trials, we get just an incredible uh, summation of the whole letter, but then some really important details that are crucial for us to understand. And some of it may seem like we've touched on it before in past series or even earlier in this series, but it's because I think that what Peter lays out here in these verses are so foundationally essential to believers that it's very much worthwhile our time to continue to engage in these, and it's where the, the book goes, where the letter goes, where Peter wrote as led by the Holy Spirit. And so even if, just like communion, even if you hear ideas that you're like, yeah, I've heard that before, check and make sure that we're listening to this with a spirit of humility, that we're really seeking to be like Christ as we engage with these absolute essentials of the Christian walk. And the first thing we see as we read through this passage, I'm going to reread verse 6. And if you recall in verse 5, the passage that we preached on last week, that we looked on last week, looking at inner church relationships as elders relate to the, the lay people of the church, as the lay people relate to the elders, how humility must undergird all of that. And that's the idea that begins this section as well. He says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Now listen to this phrase. So that at the proper time he may exalt you. And he repeats this idea in verse 10. He says, After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory. 
And so the first thing I think that we see in this section of 1 Peter that is of vital importance for us is this question that we must ask ourselves, do I have an earthly perspective or an eternal perspective? At the proper time, he may exalt us. After we have suffered a little while, we will receive eternal glory. I think one of the biggest hang-ups in the Christian life is when we forget about eternity. And before we're quick to say, wait a minute, I don't forget about eternity. I know eternity is coming. Okay, well, does our behavior reflect that? Do our words reflect that? Do our thoughts reflect that? I mean, do our lives reflect that we are eternally minded people? That we are conscious of the fact that whatever we are undergoing in this life is not forever? Are we conscious of the fact that whatever opportunity we have to live for Christ is not forever? I mean, if you're thinking, well, I'll share the gospel with someone next Wednesday, what if Jesus comes back next Tuesday? Are our lives truly driven by an awareness of eternity? Or are we rather so self-absorbed that we think the 70, 80, 90 years we have is like the pinnacle of humanity? Right? Where this is the most important time in the history of the world, and this is the most emotionally charged, like this is the most difficult. I mean, are we shaped by an eternal perspective? Consider these passages. Psalm 90, which I absolutely love. Psalm 90, starting in verse 1. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. Verse 10, the years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. So you eat well, you exercise, even by reason of your strength as you strive, you got 80 years. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Verse 12, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days. Why? So that we may be wise. Romans 8, 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. 1 Corinthians 15. We won't read the chapter, but it's a phenomenal chapter dealing with this idea of eternal perspective. Then you have 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 9 and 16 through 18. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. So we do not lose heart. I got to be honest. When I look at the articles that are being written by the American church, when I listen to the podcasts that are coming out of the American church, when I hear the conversations that the American church is having, that Christians are having, the social media posts that we're putting up, I see a lot of the American church losing heart. I think the American church demonstrated a significant loss of heart over the last three years. 
And I can't help but question as I read 1 Peter, as I read these passages, is it because we've lost our eternal perspective? Because we think our life is the be-all, end-all of time. And we forget that what is happening now is temporary. We have been called to live for something permanent. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, we're not denying that there's pain in this world. We're not denying that there's consequences in this temporary life. But though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This must be our perspective. The promo for the women's Bible study. Why do you think Tracy and Adeline picked the title, The Things Above? Because that is a foundational verse in Colossians. Set your eyes, set your heart, set your life on the things above. An eternal perspective. As we continue in this series in the coming months and we get into 2 Peter, we'll come to 2 Peter 3, 8 through 9. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. We should want Jesus to come back desperately. The early church greeted one another with Maranatha, looking forward to the return of Christ. We should desire this. Don't raise your hands, but does anyone have a loved one, a person they care about who doesn't know Christ as Savior? I know I do. So every day that he does not come back is one day more that your loved one has a chance to know Christ as Savior. I mean, think about it. His not coming back is not a sign of slowness. It's a sign of mercy and compassion. So the question is, are we more busy and preoccupied with sitting here wondering about why he's not coming back and complaining about him not coming back? Or are we saying, hey, he hasn't come back yet. Cool, I've got one more day to advance the kingdom of God. Where is our perspective? Is it on us or is it on eternity? Peter lays this out for the church, and we cannot overlook this in our own lives as we consider the way we approach our conversations, our relationships, our time here, which is short, which is precious. So the question is, what are we doing with it? I mean, really, I've asked this question before, and I ask this question of you all because I ask this question of myself regularly. If you're not living with a zeal for God, if a passion for His kingdom does not define your every breath, what are you waiting for? You waiting for your next life? You waiting for your next opportunity? You don't get one. I don't get one. When I die, it's not like, okay, well, reset, and now with what I've learned, now I'll get a chance to go all out for the Lord. No. We've got this. We've got now. We've got today. 
So we look at what weighs on us, we look at what afflicts us, we recognize that there is pain to it, but we recognize that the weight of today, the weight of today's afflictions are light compared to the eternal weight of glory. So we cast it aside and we run with perseverance the race set before us. Peter calls the church to this in verse 6. And then he gives us the crux of setting aside that weight, of what we do with that weight. What do you do with it? What do you do with the heaviness of life? What do you do with the despondency of life? What do you do with the grief of life, the pain of life? How do we handle this? What's he say in verse 7? He says, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. I mean, contemplate that. The God of the universe, the beginning and the end, cares for you. And so he gives us the right to cast our cares and anxieties upon him. What a privilege. And yet we find ourselves making the mistake of refusing to let go of them. I mean, if you're dragging a 200-pound weight and it's crushing your back, your spine is shattering and you're crumbling, and somebody comes along and says, hey, let me take that weight for you. No, it's painful. Right, that's why I'm offering to take that weight for you. No, no, it's, it's weighing me down, it's crushing me, it's preventing me from moving forward. Yeah, exactly, that's why I'm offering to take it from you. No, no, I like being able to complain about it. Scripture says, cast our anxieties upon him. Ready for this dirty little secret? That's on you and I if we're going to listen and obey to that verse. I cannot cast your anxieties upon Christ. I cannot lay down what you choose to pick up every day. You cannot lay down what I choose to pick up every day. Now, this might take time as we heal, as we process, as we grow in maturation of faith. I'm not saying this is going to be an easy snap our fingers and it's done with. But I'm saying that God has told us what to do with what weighs on us. Are we listening to him? Because he cares for us. He cares for you. Do not miss this truth. Psalm 55, 22, cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. Psalm 91, we won't read it, go home and read it. Pay note to where he says, abide in the shadow of the Almighty. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. Think of John 15, where apart from abiding in Christ, we can do nothing. Isaiah 40, Read it. Beautiful chapter. Take note of what drives everything. The source of strength and confidence and comfort is God. It's knowing God. It's resting in God. It's knowing His promises, believing His promises, believing He is true. Isaiah 51, just an incredible chapter and passage that really presents in stark contrast our options in this life. Isaiah 51, starting in verse 1. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham your father and to Sarah who bore you, for he was but one when I called him that I might bless him and multiply him. 
For the Lord comforts Zion, he comforts all her waste places, and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving in the voice of song. Give attention to me, my people, and give ear to me, my nation, for a law will go out from me, and I will set my justice for a light to the peoples." My righteousness draws near, my salvation has gone out, and my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands hope for me, and for my arm they wait. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look at the earth beneath, for the heavens vanish like smoke, and the earth will wear out like a garment, and they who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will never be dismayed." Listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. Fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings. For the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool. But my righteousness will be forever, and my salvation to all generations. I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies? of the Son of Man who is made like grass, and have forgotten the Lord your Maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. And you fear continually all the day because of the wrath of the oppressor when he sets himself to destroy? God says to his people, who do you think you are that you are more afraid of the wrath of other humans than you are mindful of my sovereignty? God said, well, you're afraid of people? Do you not know who I am? Do you not believe how powerful and sovereign I am? He says, who are you that you're afraid of man who dies? Well, you want me to be afraid of the government that God allowed to be put in place? You want me to be afraid of people who have to submit to the will of God come eternity, come judgment day? You want me to be afraid of people whose lifespan is 70, 80 years just like mine and then will return to dust? I mean, we just sang, if God is for us, who can stand against us? Church, do you believe it? God calls his people to be mindful of this. And what happens that allows a believer to be more afraid of man than they are of the Lord? A lack of eternal perspective. An overindulgent, self-focused, earthly perspective. And so I love that Peter lays this out. Look, at the proper time, he will exalt you. So until that time, cast your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. God is the one who wrote Scripture. He's the one who put in all the reminders that, hey, this life is going to be hard and painful. So he's not surprised by difficulty. But he has also told us what to do when that arises, when that pain comes, when that difficulty occurs in our life. He's laid it out for us. So the question is, are we resting in God and his promises? Are we waking up and saying, okay, the Lord is with me. God goes before me. He encircles me. He encompasses me. He is my faith, or my faith in Him, 
His righteousness, His faithfulness is a shield and buckler in my life. I got this. I've got today. Not because of who I am, but because of who He is. It's okay, economy. Tank. Crash. My God owns the cow on Thousand Hills. His reserves aren't depleted. It's okay, health. Be afflicted. Decay like all flesh does. My God promises a glorified body. It's okay, pain. My Savior knows pain. And He loves me, and He comforts me, and He walks with me in the pain. The eternal perspective in 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7 is incredible. And then he, man, and then he addresses it very deliberately, very intentionally, very specifically in his time on earth. If none of these other passages, if none of these other passages carry weight with us, and they should, but if none of these other passages are enough to convince us that God knows what's going on, that Jesus knows what's going on, think of what Jesus said in Matthew 11 and 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus knew. Jesus knows. He knows we're going to feel labored and heavy laden. And so he says... When you feel like that, come to me. <laughs> it's why I so regularly push for scripture and prayer. Because God has the answers that I don't, that your elders don't, that your friends don't, that your favorite pastor on TV doesn't. If you come to me looking for rest, we're both in trouble. We've got to go to Christ for rest to cast our anxieties on him, knowing that he cares for us. And related to this, Peter gives a more specific warning than in verse 8. He says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. One of the best things you can do in sports is to game plan. Of all the teams that played yesterday, you think any of the teams went into their game having watched zero film on their opponent? You think any of the teams went into the game with no plan for what the other team was going to do? No knowledge of, you know, like Ohio State, right? Ryan Day showed up at the stadium last night and was like, hey, who are we playing tonight? I didn't even check the schedule. You think that happened? You think they went into it saying, I know who we're playing, I know their tactics, I know the plays they like to run, and I'm ready for it. So Peter here lays out, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a lion seeking someone to devour. And to understand this verse, we have to understand two words in that verse. Adversary is a legal term. It, it means the opposing counsel. It means the other lawyer who is there making every argument possible to see you lose. In devil, that word for devil means slanderer. Slandering, verbal, tearing down what is true and replacing it with what is a lie, okay? And so Peter lays out, know your enemy. 
And the first question answered by chapter by verse 8, who is your adversary, Christian? I'm not that wasn't a trick question. Your adversary the devil. The devil is our adversary. Pay very close attention to this, not unbelievers. Unbelievers are not our enemy. Listen to 2 Corinthians 4. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Let me reread that. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. If there was a blind person in here with no cane and they were tripping over chairs and stumbling to figure their way about, all right, so can you visualize a blind person up on stage trying to navigate all this and they keep tripping over things and they keep stumbling and falling? How many of you, how many of us would sit out there and be like, that's what they get? Their fault. Good for them. They earned it. No! I mean, would our hearts not break with compassion for a blind person stumbling about? Would our inclination not be to run up here and help them navigate? Would we not make every effort to, man, that's a blind person. They're about to walk over the edge. I need to stop them. So why in the world can we not look at the unbelieving world around us and say the same thing? We have made unbelievers our enemy. And I think that's actually one of the greatest deceptions that the devil has pulled on the church. Instead of having compassion on these blind people, instead of reaching out to these blind people, instead of praying for their salvation, instead of pursuing their reconciliation with God, we sit back and we fight with them. Now, is it possible that unbelievers are being used by the enemy to further his advances and his directives? Yeah, absolutely. Why? Because they're deceived by him. They're his victims. They don't need our scorn. They don't need our contempt. They don't need our judgment. They don't need our arrogance. They need our love. They need our compassion. They need our Savior. And as long as we are obsessed with pointing out everything they do wrong as our enemy, we are missing the point of who our real adversary is. So know your enemy, start by knowing who your actual enemy is. And then what tactics does our enemy use? In Scripture, we see Luke 4, 1 through 13, he uses temptation. He uses harassment, 2 Corinthians 12, 7 to 10. He uses mockery and discouragement, Job 16, Psalm 22, Psalm 35, Lamentations 2, Lamentations 3. He uses deceit, 2 Corinthians 4, Revelation 12 and 13. These are the tactics of our enemy. Know these tactics. Be on alert for them. Be on the lookout for them. Recognize the game plan that they're going to come at us with. Know when and where the attack is going to come. This is a question that you got to answer for yourself. I cannot answer for every single person in here, and you cannot answer for me, when and where am I going to get attacked? Know your weaknesses, because that's where you're going to get it. I can give you a partial answer. We're going to get attacked in our weakest moments. 
when, when the devil tempted Jesus, was it at the start of 40 days of fasting or at the end of 40 days of fasting? The end. What does it say? After 40 days, Jesus was tired and hungry, which has got to be like the understatement of the year. That's when the devil attacked. Know your weaknesses. Is it when you sit down to pay the bills? Is when it, you haven't slept well? Is it when you're hungry? Is it when you're, the rest of the family's out of the house, you're by your, I mean, know when you're weakest and be ready to fight then. Have your defense plan ahead of time. And then the why. So who's our enemy? What tactics do they use? When and where are they going to attack? And why? Which sometimes I think helps us because we understand we're at war. I mean, wake up. If you think that the enemy doesn't want to see you destroyed, you're deluding yourself. Scripture clearly lays this out. John 10.10, 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. That's what the enemy wants of you. But we know this. We know this tactic. We know this approach. So what does that enable us to do? Ready for some game planning? That enables us to look at what attacks us and use these identifiers to figure out if it's from the enemy or from not. So a thought pops up, a, a desire pops up, a possible action pops up, a possible response pops up to a trigger situation. Okay, so we ask a question. If I continue down this thought path, will that lead to something being stolen, killed, or destroyed? What do I mean by it? Man, you know what? I'm feeling kind of off. I don't think I've spent much time in Scripture lately. I'm missing God's Word. I need, I need to get in Scripture today. Yeah, but, man, you, you dropped out of high school. You don't have a college degree. You're not a pastor. Every time you open Scripture, you don't understand what you're reading. Isn't that discouraging? I mean, yeah, that is. Man, I do. I feel dumb when I read it. I feel like I don't understand. And plus, you're really busy. Think of how much you have to do today. You know what? Tomorrow, you don't have as much. If you go really, if you go aggressively after yard work today and like the house stuff today, you can spend more time in Scripture tomorrow. Yeah, maybe I'll be in a better place tomorrow. Maybe I'll be in a better headspace tomorrow. That's all right. We'll just push it off. That seems pretty innocuous, pretty innocent. Well, what just got stolen, killed, and destroyed? You can't understand Scripture. It's above you. It's too deep for you. Well, Scripture says that the Holy Spirit teaches me and that he is in me and he is the one who guides me into all understanding and truth. So when I listen to this voice, my confidence in Scripture has been destroyed a little bit. And my confidence in Scripture has been robbed because I listen to this voice. I listen to that thought train. My time with the Lord has been stolen from me because I listen to that thought train. See, you see where we're getting at? When the thoughts start to pop up, when the possible actions and responses start to pop up, ask the questions, okay, if I continue down this road, will it lead to something being stolen, killed, or destroyed? Why is that important? Because that's what the enemy wants to do. Knowing our enemy enables us to, what does he say in verse 9? Resist him firm in your faith. Knowing that the same kinds of suffering are be experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. We're called to fight back. That word resist, it's the same exact word in James 4, 7. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. 
What that word means it properly, literally, it means take a complete stand against. What it means is establish your position by digging in and refusing to be budged. In James 4, 7, those were two military terms. Submit to God, line up under his military authority, and then resist. That was the same word, the same idea they would use for the Roman shield bearers in battle. Where the shield bearers would lock up, they would form that shield wall, they would dig in their heels, and they would refuse to yield an inch of ground to the enemy. This is what we are called to do. We are called to resist. You want to pride yourself on being independent and strong? You want to pride yourself on not just going along with the crowd? Which, if you pay attention to a lot of our conversation today, I mean... How derogatorily do we refer to those other people who are just sheep? Right? Well, they just they accept whatever's fed to them, not me. I know better. You want to know better? You want to stand your ground? Resist the devil. Fight back in this war. So now the question arises, how? Know your enemy. Who, what, when, where, why? How? How do we fight back? How do we resist? And I want to quickly pause there is a lot of information out here on spiritual warfare. You can go to a number of sources, you can go to a number of YouTube channels, you can go to a number of TikTok channels. I mean, there are a lot of people talking about spiritual warfare. If we really unpacked it all this morning, we would have to order dinner. And I don't think anybody wants to do that. I do, but I don't think very many of you want to do that. If you would be interested, so this is a pause, if you would be interested in a two-hour, two-and-a-half-hour just panel Q&A, hey, what is spiritual warfare? What is it not? What does it look like? What does it not look like? What's true? What's not? We've got a sheet outside the doors there, and we're just calling it gauging interest. Just put your name down. There's two questions like, yeah, I'd be interested. A Friday would be better. A Saturday would be better. A meal would help or not. We just want to see if this is a conversation that we as a church body want to have. Because if everybody's like, no, Sam, we're not interested in that. Okay, well, then I'll just keep pestering Mario in the office with questions right? But if you guys are like, yeah, that conversation would be helpful, then let's have that conversation, okay? So we're not going to look at every possible element of spiritual warfare today, but we are going to look at the basics when we're considering that who, what, when, where, why, and how. How do we resist? We got to go to Scripture. Scripture has to define our answer to this question because there are so many wrong perspectives out there. And we're going to start with a passage that is taken out of context very, 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 very frequently. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. That verse gets abused all the time. What does this passage defy or define those strongholds as? The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. It's arguing. It is, here is point A, here is counterpoint, which one's true? Let's go back to what is the term given to the devil? adversary. What is an adversary? A legal advocate, a counselor, someone who argues, someone who attempts to tear down truth and replace it with their version of it. What is the word devil? Slanderer, someone who takes truth and attempts to distort it. 
Spiritual warfare is a battle for truth. So the weapons that we have been given are weapons designed to destroy falsity. To fight back against attacks on truth. Consider these passages. 2 Timothy 3.16 All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, that might be rebuke in your translations, for correction and for training in righteousness. Hebrews 4.12 For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. How do we resist? Peter also said it, stand firm in faith. It's not about repeating a phrase over and over again. It's not about some ritual of behavior. It's not about making declarations and stamping your foot and clapping your hands. It's about standing firm in truth. It's not rote behaviors. There's not an equation where, well, I did this, I declared this, I raised this hedge... And then I blocked this and forbade it from happening, so now I'm safe in the battle. No, it's standing firm in truth. Standing firm in faith. Consider the most famous passage, I think, on this notion of warfare. Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So we're talking about standing. We're talking about digging our feet and resisting. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand Firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth that holds it all together. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet. If my feet are dug in so that I will not be pushed back by the enemy, what's on my shoes? The readiness of the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. What's the only offensive weapon laid out in Scripture? The Word of God. He does not say, take up the Word of God and these seven phrases... And these four groups, he says, take up your offensive weapon, the word of God. When Jesus resisted the temptation of the devil in the wilderness, he did not do so with special phrases. He did not do so with ritualistic behaviors. He did so with scripture. He fought back with the word of God. Our shoes are the gospel of peace. Our helmet is the helmet of salvation. Our shield is the shield of faith. It's truth. It's standing firm in the truth. It's God's word and God's word alone that protects, that wins, that convicts, that cuts, that pierces. The church must be built solely on the word of God. If we want to gain an inch of ground in this battle. This is what Peter calls us to. This is what Paul calls us to. This is what the writers of Scripture call us to time and time again. This is what God calls His people to. That is how we resist. 
That is how we stand firm. This is where the church must be today. I believe this with everything in me. And as we continue this passage, we see that Peter brings it full circle from where he started this letter. He says, After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So what we're going to do here in a second is I'm going to pray to close. And then as our benediction, I'm just going to read the start of 1 Peter 1 again. So that we understand where Peter is coming from. We understand where this letter ties back to, which is where it all began. Please join me in prayer. Lord, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you have done for us, what you have given us that you have provided the armor for this fight, you have provided the weapons for this fight, and you have provided us with that eternal reminder that today may not be easy, but it does not change your sovereignty. It does not change the victory of Jesus. And so we praise you for these things, and we thank you for these things. We thank you for letters like 1 Peter that remind us of these truths. God, may we be people submitted to them, shaped by them, encouraged by them, we give you all the praise and glory, for it is yours and yours alone. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Lord, may Community Bible Church, may these men and women, may our lives be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's in Jesus' name and only by his blood that we pray. Amen.